Hey everyone, welcome to the Cross to Crown podcast, episode 47. My name is Doug. Thanks for joining me. Today we're going to talk about intimacy with Jesus. What does that even mean? How to recruit and train elders, and how not to do word studies. So grab your Bible, grab a cup of black coffee, and let's get to work. It's time to put on the mind of Christ. Hey friends, welcome back. Uh, glad you're with me today. I uh, wanted to start off today by just saying thank you for all the encouraging comments that have been coming my way for this podcast. Also want to say thank you for everyone who checked out my son's new song, I Know Who I Am. Uh, if you're new to the podcast, uh, my, my 14-year-old son just released his first song, his first single. It's called I Know Who I Am. His name is Gabe Gooden. Love for you to uh, check it out on Apple Music, uh, iTunes, Spotify, any of those places, or YouTube Music. And we are going to read release his uh, uh, music video, which uh, actually by the time you listen to this, it will probably be out. Anyway, I appreciate your encouragement on that. He's very encouraged and he's got more more songs coming. Also wanted to mention one other thing to you unrelated to that. Uh, if you have Netflix, uh, I would encourage you to watch the, uh, the new documentary on Bill Gates. I believe it's called Inside Bill's Mind, something like that. It's a two-part uh, documentary. Uh, in full disclosure, I'm an Apple guy. I've always been an Apple guy. Uh, didn't have a lot of respect for Bill Gates or for Microsoft uh, for many years and really didn't know that much about him other than I thought uh, his presentations were kind of dull and Microsoft was uh, not my favorite operating system. But having watched this, I will tell you, Bill, Gra- Bill Gates is an impressive man. He is a really smart guy. And I suppose that should go without saying the fact that he built a massive corporation took over the uh, the computing world and was uh, for a time the richest man in the world um, so I shouldn't be surprised that he was that he is so impressive but um, in this documentary it talks about his philanthropy as as well as some parallel uh, or flashbacks I guess to uh, the building of Microsoft and his personal life with his wife and his daughter that kind of thing but it Spent a lot of time discussing what he's been doing recently since he retired from Microsoft. And the man is just really smart, and he's applying his time and his money to some worthwhile things. Uh, they he, he basically pulled together uh, engineers and innovators to create a, a self-contained... Um, how would you even describe it? Waste, uh, waste renewal setup. I don't know. It, it, it's for a, a poor country. I forget if it's in uh, South Africa or South America somewhere. Anyway, you can you can watch it and get those details. But uh, he found some communities that uh, that were their sewage was basically also their drinking water, and people were just dumping their waste, uh, human waste, and other waste uh, everywhere, and they were being con- their all their drinking water was contaminated. And he began to think through and invite others into uh, seeing if there was some way to to solve that problem. And he did. He basically created a a system where the 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 toilets, uh, the water uh, and waste that came from those would be um, recycled, and all that was left at the end of it was drinking water and ash which they could dispense with, and then the drinking water was clean. It's fascinating just to see how it all came about. And it's expensive, but 
boy, for the poor, uh, sickly uh, parts of the world, this could really uh, change things. And most recently, he's been working on uh, Generation 4 nuclear 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 uh, power that is safe, that, that feeds on nuclear waste from uh, previous generations of, uh, of plants. And it's, it's self-contained and it just shuts down when it gets overheated and, and it, there's no chance of a Chernobyl kind of uh, corruption of mankind and, and uh, uh, harm, cancerous, that kind of thing. So anyway, I found that interesting. And, and the thing that I guess struck me was this is the kind of innovation and scientific and technological pursuit that in generations past, Christians would have been in the forefront of, uh, because Christians were trying to learn God's world and understand God's world and make a difference uh, for for the communities of the world because of our desire to love God and love our neighbor. And it just struck me here that here's this this unbeliever with vast amounts of wealth and experience who is leading the charge in some of these areas and makes me wish that there were more Christians who would apply themselves to this kind of endeavor. So check it out, Inside Bill's Mind, I believe it's called, on Netflix. All right, let's get to our first section of this podcast, the King's section. If you are new to this podcast, uh, it's divided up into three segments, the first of which is uh, about manhood. I'm uh, talking to men, trying to help us become better men in a culture that is increasingly hostile toward what God called men to be and to do. Uh, So today I want to set it up this way. Uh, One observation I have is that the culture is in increasingly trying to move men into becoming more feelers and talkers and away from being doers. Our natural bent as as men, as males, is to be about getting things done, to accomplish the purposes and missions that God has called us to. It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden when God put Adam in the garden and said, here, cultivate it, care for it, protect it, take charge of this earth, rule it, subdue it. And that means get after it, get her done, do it. But there's this constant push to minimize the importance of doing. In fact, it's often categorized in the terms of uh, pursuing works righteousness, of being caught up in achievement and accomplishment. And that's not what uh, Christianity is about. That's not what manhood is about. We're to find our identity in Christ. We are to, um, to just be and not do and all those things, which is really hard to substantiate biblically. The scripture would say, and our own experience as men would would verify, we are built to do, to get stuff done, to pursue things. Uh, This came home to me just the other night as I was uh, going through a a book on on manhood with a small group of men. And I'm not going to mention the the book, and I'm not going to talk about the author. There's a lot of good things in the book, but I just want to use as an illustration something that uh, that he said. Uh, he said basically this, all of us men uh, have two primary needs. And the first thing he says is we have a need for intimacy. And then he defines that as safe, genuine relationships with other people. So he's saying our basic need here, one of them is intimacy and safe, genuine relationships. And I got to tell you, the first time I read that, I almost threw the book across the room. Uh, where did, how did we get here to where men are telling other men that our basic need is 
intimacy. What does that even mean? Uh, he defines it as safe, genuine relationships. You know, I'm a man. I was a boy. I have a son. I'm watching him transition from boyhood to adolescence to manhood. And I, I see and observe a lot of men, a lot of boys. I just don't see it. It is not our, um, our natural bent as men to seek out intimacy. When we hear the word intimacy, we think sex, right? That's, that's how the word is used now. We, we, it, it's a synonym for sex. It's a euphemism for sex. If a man and women, woman are intimate, if they are pursuing intimacy, if they're having sexual problems, they are problems with intimacy. And now we're going to import that word and say, one of my greatest needs is intimacy. Well, yeah, if you're talking about sex with my wife, but not with other people. How did we get here? What does this, what does this even mean? What does it look like? And then the word safe, safe relationships. I just don't think that's how we're naturally wired as men. We want genuine relationships, sure. But the idea is not to sit around and talk and share our feelings. Uh, that's not what men gravitate toward. Uh, we're not really looking for safety. We're looking for men who will stand shoulder to shoulder with us to get stuff done. And certainly shared experiences are great and, and we want to work together to accomplish our purposes. But safety is not the way most men would categorize our need. We, we like danger. We like risk taking. We, we, we like to push it some. And even in relationships, it's, it, it's just not true that men are seeking safe, intimate relationships. But then this comes across to our relationship with Christ as well. The natural progression is we want intimate relationships and safety. Well, that's also what we want with Jesus. We want safe relationships and intimacy with Jesus, which again, when a man hears that, we think, ooh, I don't want to have sex with Jesus. I don't, I don't want to be close to Jesus in the way that I'm close to my wife. That, that's just not inherently true to my nature. But we talk about this, and, and this spills over into how we go about our relationship with Jesus. We, we've been told that we need quiet times. We need the first thing in the morning to get our cup of coffee and spend time with Jesus. And again, I ask, what does that even mean? Spend time with Jesus. What we've done is we've made quiet time an experience and it's an experience that makes us feel better. So we've taken this thing that is supposed to be Jesus-centered, and we've made it me-centered. I feel so close to Jesus. I feel his love. I feel intimacy with Jesus because I had a great quiet time, because I got away and I meditated and I pondered and I prayed and I read his word and he just spoke to me and he spoke to my heart, and now I'm ready to go face the day. None of that is really how we as men are designed, and there's nothing remotely close to that in the Bible. So here's where this all came to a head for me this week. I am preaching through the gospel of John in my church, and Jesus there is having a very... <laughs> intimate time with his disciples. He's in the upper room. We're in chapters 13 through 17, the, the upper room discourse, as we call it. He's gathered his disciples together, and he is sharing his final thoughts with them before he is going to die. If you read that section, you're not going to see a man and men sitting around, sharing their heart, sharing their feelings, getting intimate with one another. 
Jesus is giving instructions. He's calling them out. He says, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. He says, I'm going to leave you all and you all don't love me because if you did love me, you would be happy for me that I'm leaving because I'm going to my father and he's greater than I, he's greater than you. You would say, that's great, Jesus, that you're leaving to go uh, be with your father, the God of the universe. But instead, you're selfish and you're saying, well, what about us? Poor us, all this. This is a, a pretty intense conversation and Jesus is pretty straightforward with them. And these are his friends. This is a, a close gathering of his friends at a, at a tender moment. And, and they're not sitting around squishily uh, talking about their, their feelings. Well, Jesus says this to them, which I think we as, uh, as men have to, have to grab a hold of and get straight. Uh, Jesus has said three, time, three times in this section of chapter 14 of John, uh, he has talked about the importance of obedience. And notice what he says in verse 15. This is John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Notice he doesn't say, if you love me, you should keep my commandments. He says, you will. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Not if you love me, your heart will just go pitter-patter toward me. Not if you love me, you'll want to be close to me. No, he says, if you love me, you will obey me. That is a natural outworking of love for Christ. A little bit later in verse 21, he says, he who has my commandments and keeps them, he is the one who loves me. Do you catch that? If you love Jesus, you have his commandments and you're going to obey them. He says, this one will be loved by my father. So the one who obeys Jesus, keeps his word, is loved by the father. And then he says this, and I will disclose myself to him. Let that sink in. Jesus says, I will disclose, I will reveal myself to the one who has my commands and who obeys them. Brother, do you want to know Jesus more deeply? I hope so. Later on in John 17, he says, this is eternal life to know God and to know Jesus, his son, whom he sent. We must know Jesus. It's all over the New Testament. The knowledge of the son of God, the knowledge of Christ is the heart of everything about eternal life and about the Christian life. We must know him more deeply. How do we do that? Does Jesus say, I will disclose myself if you pull away for 20 minutes every morning? and snuggle up in a blanket, and read, and pray, and meditate, and experience quiet time with me? No, he didn't say that. He says, I will disclose myself to the one who has my word and who obeys it. Fellow king, you want to know Jesus more deeply? Study his word to see what instructions your high king has given you, and set out to obey him with your whole heart. Jesus says, that's the one to whom I will reveal myself. That's the one who will get to know me. It's not about talking. It's not about feeling. It's not about experience. Deeper knowledge with Jesus is about obedience.
All right, this section is for pastors, elders, church leaders. This is our shepherds section. Uh, Last week, I received an email from a pastor in Omaha, Nebraska, and he asked how we at my church go about recruiting and training elders. And I thought, yeah, it's probably something worth uh, talking to all of you about. Uh, you may have heard me say this before. I believe that the uh, one of the top two or three contributing factors to the weakness of Christianity in our modern day is the uh, the lack of good, strong elders. Pastors and elders uh, don't do a great job, generally speaking, of recruiting and training elders and and growing the elder board so that it truly is shared ministry, shared leadership, and uh, doesn't center on one man, the pastor. Uh, And and we uh, we need, we must have multiple men who are overseeing the flock. And so a lot of guys will just tell me, I I don't know how to go about doing this. So I wanted to share a few things that I mentioned to this uh, this guy who sent me the email. our uh, our recruiting and training at our church is pretty organic. We don't have a class they have to take necessarily. We don't have a, a terribly rigid structure, uh, but here's kind of how we approach it. Uh, number one, they, uh, they have to read and adopt and, and uh, endorse our philosophy of ministry. Uh, we have uh, a document that contains the foundational principles of what we do as a church, and so they need to really absorb it and agree with it and, and agree to, uh, to implement it as, uh, in our church. Uh, we have several position papers that we've written where we've taken uh, positions on certain issues that we think uh, just need to be said for a variety of reasons, and so they need to study those as well and uh, agree to support those positions. Uh, we ask them to affirm male headship in the home and in the church. Uh, again, if you've been listening to this podcast, you you know, you've heard my views of this. Uh, I believe this is, practically speaking, the, the crucial issue of our day. And, uh, and if our elders are not solid and unapologetic about male headship, uh, then our church is going to suffer. Then we leave uh, the gates open for feminism to come in, and, uh, and we have to stand firm against that, and that starts with the elders. We are the shepherds. We're the one to protect the sheep from error. So they have to endorse that, have to believe that. We have to see evidence of that in their, in their lives, that uh, they are leaders of their home. That's uh, one of the qualifications in First Timothy three. They have to manage and rule their home well, and they have to affirm male only leadership in the church. So we have that discussion with them. Uh, we ask them to affirm the doctrines of grace, or what is sometimes called the five points of Calvinism. Now we're not hard over on this. We don't. We don't in the sense that we don't. Uh, I don't like every articulation of uh, so called Calvinism. Uh, basically, we want them to affirm that uh, that. that Man is sinful and does not have the ability to uh, to turn from his sin on his own. He needs the the power and the and the help of the Holy Spirit, the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. Uh, that that God is sovereign and that He uh, has chosen uh, those who will come to Him. Um, limited atonement. We'll come back to in a minute. Uh, we have we we want them to affirm that that God's 
grace actually works. When he sends the Holy Spirit, the Spirit does do the regenerating and that uh, those who are truly his will persevere to the end. Now, where we've given some latitude is the one that so many people have struggles with. That's limited atonement. Uh, that's a terrible way to phrase it. Limited atonement's a bad word. Um, but we, we just you know want them to wrestle through what actually happened on the cross. Did Jesus actually atone for the sins of people uh, on the cross? And if he did, then necessarily uh, unbelievers don't uh, receive atonement for their sin. Now, we've had guys who haven't understood all these nuances and and would say, basically, they're in basic agreement, but they, you know, they couldn't go teach on these things. That's fine. What we're really after is men who are, who are not um, suggesting that man's will is freer than God's and that God has all, done all that he can in salvation and now it's purely up to mankind, that kind of thing. We're, we're, we're looking for people who have a very high view of God's sovereignty. So we talk through that with them and, and we will give exceptions based on where they're at and their understanding as long as they are not uh, hard against some of these things. Uh, and we ask them to affirm the basic tenets of New Covenant theology, and that is uh, that God's future plan is for Christ and His church, not Israel, and that we are not uh, bound to the law of Moses, that the law of Moses and the Old Covenant were unique to Israel. And again, they don't have to understand everything that, uh, that, uh, that Blake White talks about in his book, for instance. They don't have to know Abraham's four seeds inside out and backwards. They don't have to listen to all these podcasts and be able to articulate all these things. But those are the essential things that we want them to affirm because we don't want elders to, uh, to be pushing back on these things that, that matter to the rest of us as elders. So those, that's some of the theological discussions. Uh, discussions we have with them. We do require them to read Alexander Strauch's book, uh, Biblical Eldership. It's really good. Uh, we've added another one as well. Uh, I believe the man's name is Jeremy Rennie. Uh, it's a Nine Marks book. It's a shorter book. We usually start with that one. And I believe it's called Church Elders uh, Yeah, Church Elders by, uh, by Jeremy Rennie. Uh, I will put links to those two books in the show notes here. So we uh, require them to read those. And then myself, uh, I get with them and we'll have a couple other elders get with them and just talk through if there are any concerns they have about those books, uh, if they if they have any differences with those books, and make sure they understand uh, what the role of the elder is in the modern day. We're not uh, just a business board, uh, that kind of thing, but uh, true shepherds truly getting in and making disciples and, and protecting the flock and training up leaders and that kind of thing. Um, and then depending on what other weaknesses we see in their theology or their practice, then we might assign some other books to read and discuss with them. Uh, so as you can see, this is not a short process. Uh, we also interview their families and sometimes their coworkers and neighbors just to see what kind of reputation they have outside the home. Definitely want to hear from the wife and children. Uh, how are they at managing the home? Uh, is there uh, you know, hidden harshness and abuse? Is there alcoholism? Is there uh, neglect and abdication? Uh, whatever. But we want to hear from the wives and children uh, to see if they are fit to be leaders. Um, and then more practically, we, uh, we talk about uh, how meetings should go and how to conduct meetings, how to lead meetings, how to be a participant in meetings. I'm going to save the rest of that discussion for a, a future podcast, probably next week. We'll come back and talk about this. Uh, but I just want to encourage any elder pastor listening to this, it is well worth your time and it is extremely beneficial to the health of your church to really invest in raising up elders. Uh, we have 14 elders at my church, and uh, we are always on the lookout for more men who are, uh, who are potential elders. Uh, it truly does spread and share the, uh, the ministry load, so I don't uh, bear it all. 
I don't have more influence. Oh, I do have more influence than some of the other guys, but I don't have more authority than the other guys. So it's healthy for the flock. It's healthy for me as a leader. And it's the way Christ set it up. Uh, I, I've told many of my pastor friends who started in a, in a smaller church or a, a new church, I've encouraged them, invest in elders as soon as you can. That, that is crucial to your long-term health and success. Some have done that, and you can see their churches are thriving. Others have uh, neglected that, and as the church has grown, they are overwhelmed with the workload and they don't have uh, co-leaders, co-shepherds with them to bear the, the, the weight of uh, animosity and opposition and the, the struggles and counseling and all of that. And they're suffering because they've not invested in elders. They've invested in other things first. And I'm just telling you, uh, any pastor listening to this, uh, maybe the most important thing you could do is to set aside significant time until you have a really strong and thriving elder board. All right, for our New Covenant Theology section, today we're going to continue to discuss biblical theology. Last week, I began a contrast between biblical theology and systematic theology, and today I'm going to continue that contrast uh, so that we we understand the benefits and the detriments of systematic theology and see that biblical theology is the superior way to, to read and study the Bible. Uh, Don't get me wrong, there is a place for systematic theology. It's important uh, for a couple of reasons, but it should not be the the main way that we read the Bible. Uh, So let me start with this. The the primary tools of theology are what we call analysis and synthesis. Now, those may not be words that you think of when you you think of Bible study, but let me just unpack this. I think it'll be very clear to you why uh, we use those terms. Analysis is basically exegesis. It it comes from a a word which means to loose. Uh, So we, we look at a passage, we look at a section of scripture, and we unloose it uh, for the purpose of understanding its meaning. That, that's just how we do it. Whenever we set out to, to study something, we, we pull it back and we begin to look at it. So uh, earlier, I was uh, earlier in this podcast, I was talking about John 14 and the upper room discourse. And there's no way to study the upper room discourse without pausing and really focusing just on that section and pulling it out and looking it over. And seeing what words are there, what phrases are there, what what things are repeated. Uh, one of my co-pastors, uh, we were discussing this just the other day, and uh, he has counted up forty nine uses of the word "father" in the upper room discourse. That's significant. Uh, there's a lot of "father" in the upper room discourse, and Jesus saying, "I came to do the will of my Father." Uh, that plays into what Jesus is trying to. To teach and to reveal in the upper room discourse. Uh, so, so that's part of analysis, pulling it out and examining it from every side and looking at it. So that's analysis. But then we synthesize. That's the synthesis part. That's where we interpret it. That's where we, we put it back in the scripture and, uh, and determine what it means uh, according to the whole. Well, systematic theology and biblical theology come at analysis uh, largely the same way, but synthesis quite differently. We still pull it out and look it over and analyze it, but then how we put it back, uh, systematic theology approaches that in a, in a different manner than uh, biblical theology. Uh, systematic theology 
tends to put things back in terms of categories, theological categories. Uh, we, we discussed this some last week, but just to, to reiterate, um, systematic theology deals with doctrines uh, topically in categories, the different ologies, right? The theology, uh, Christology, pneumatology, and so on, the, the different doctrines. And they, uh, systematic theology looks at the, the logical synthesis, putting things back together in a very synthetic, I'm sorry, a very logical uh, way. It's hierarchical. There are first doctrines, starting with the doctrine of the word or the doctrine of God, and then working way down to others. Um, and the time flow of the scripture is not first uh, of first importance to systematic theology. Now, what systematic the systematic theology does well is there is a self-conscious engagement with the culture and application. So the idea is we analyze texts and then we put them back together with a view to what can we learn from this for our current culture and defend against error and how do we apply it. Those are good things, but we have to be careful. Biblical theology, on the other hand, is less concerned with uh, logical priorities, but more concerned with the history of redemption. What is the Bible? How does this, this, whatever passage I'm analyzing, how does it fit into the larger theme of the history of redemption and Christ? Uh, we pull out from the text what is there and keep it in its context. Uh, above all else, context is king for biblical theology. So here's how I like to think of this and see if this word picture will help you. Um, uh, if you think of systematic theology and biblical theology approaching a puzzle, so a, a, a board puzzle, right? So you, you, you put all the pieces down on a table and they're, they're all scattered around, and now you're going to pull each piece and analyze it. So you reach down, you pull up this piece, and you look at it, and you say, basically, this is a bluish piece with a little bit of green. So you set it over here into a, and start a pile. Then you pull this one out, and it's red. And you pull this one out, and it's yellow. And then you find another bluish one, so you put it in the blue, and you find a red one. And so you start creating all these piles of ologies, these piles of doctrines, and you build your piles uh, based on their color. But then you come across one that's got blue and green almost uh, the same amount. Do I put that in the blue pile or the green pile? Well, I have to make a choice. It's got to fit in one of my, one of my categories. Uh, and this is what I talked about last week. We, we, we developed this doctrine of God's sovereignty such that he is not a man. He does not repent. So that idea that God does not repent goes in the character of God category, the theology category, and God does not repent. The God who is is not a repenting God. But then we come across the passage where it says he did repent. He changed his mind. Now what do we do with that? Do we create another category that says now there's a God who does repent? No, we don't do that. That's, uh, that's, that's abhorrent to systematic theology. So we put it in the character of God, we put it in the don't repent category, and now we're having to force this God repented into our God doesn't repent category. And that's where we come up with words like um, anthropomorphic language, that, that God speaks like a man, even though he's not a man, so that he can stoop down and condescend to us and, and interact with us as humans. Now, there's an element of truth to that. But that problem um, isn't, uh, wouldn't be such a problem 
if we weren't so jealous to create systematic categories where we can put things in and, and, and what we didn't end up doing is forcing things in there that just don't fit very well. Now, again, if, we're, if someone comes along and says, God doesn't know the future, and certainly many men have come along and said that. Uh, some of you probably remember the openness of God heresy of a couple generations ago. Um, they come along and say, God doesn't know the future. He's not in control of the future. God is not sovereign. He's not omnipotent, all those things. Then yes, we pull out all the Bible's teaching on God's sovereignty and we emphasize God himself says, I don't repent. And so we argue from that, God doesn't actually change his mind in the way that men do. And, and, and I would argue the same thing. And the, Jesus said it, not a hair falls out of your head, apart from the will of the Father, not a sparrow falls to the ground, apart from the will of the Father. Uh, Paul says in Ephesians that all things uh, occur because of the will of God. Uh, and, and I believe it's verse 11 of chapter 1. They all happen according to his will, that kind of thing. So God is absolutely sovereign over everything that occurs. Every single thing that occurs is God's decretive will. I believe that, and I can make that argument from the scripture. And so when I'm warding off error, then I would want to appeal to those truths. But for our normal Bible reading, our normal studying of things, and our normal preaching and teaching and application, if you're preaching on a text to illustrate God's sovereignty, uh, you need to be sure that is the main reason that text exists. The example I gave last week was the whole story of Joseph and the coat of many colors through the end of Genesis. The main storyline of the, uh, the chapters 37 through 50 of Genesis is not the abstract doctrine of God's sovereignty. No, it's to show God's sovereignty in bringing Joseph and his family to Egypt so that Israel could be formed in order to eventually get to the cross of Jesus Christ and the church and the new covenant. That's why those stories are in there, not abstractly to illustrate the, uh, the sovereignty of God, not to help us build a pile of God's sovereignty pieces from our puzzle pieces. Rather, biblical theology says... I pick up this piece from the table, I examine it, I put it down, and I pick up the next piece and I see, try to see where it fits. And the goal of putting the pieces of the puzzle together is, wait for it, to form the picture of Jesus. The front of the box of the puzzle of scripture has a picture of Jesus on it. And every piece of that puzzle that we pick up is to be put into place to form the picture of Jesus. The Bible is about Jesus. We are to read every section, every paragraph, uh, every event, every character we are in to interpret as to how it points to, prefigures, portrays Christ. He is the picture of that the puzzle pieces are intended to make. So when you're reading the Bible, when you're teaching the Bible, when you're having family devotions, whatever you're doing, you should always be looking for Christ, not for doctrinal categories primarily. There's a place for that, but that's not how we are to approach it on a day-to-day -day basis. Closely related to that is the difference between systematic theology and biblical theology when it comes to word studies. Many of you have probably been taught 
that we should do Bible study primarily through word studies. Look up a word and trace it all the way through the Bible and formulate an understanding of that word. Again, is that helpful? Sometimes. Does it have its place? Sure. But words don't keep their consistent meanings everywhere. That's not how language works, not even in the Bible. And we have to be careful not to take a word and fill it with theological meaning and now go read that theological meaning into every occurrence of that word. It doesn't work. That's not how the Bible works. That's not how the language works in any culture, even the Bible. And, uh, and it's not helpful. It forces us to put things in categories where they don't belong. So, for example, think about how important the word justification is in our theology. We just recently celebrated Reformation Day, right? And sola fide, justification by faith alone, is, is at the forefront of what matters to us. It's the heart of the gospel, justification by faith. And you would switch to, uh, you would turn to um, Romans chapter 3 to explain justification. There in Romans 3, Paul says emphatically, justification is by faith and faith alone. It's not by works. Justification is not by works, he says. And he uses Abraham as exhibit A, that Abraham was justified by faith and not by works. So, the Reformers and all of the Reformers' children have said, yep, justification by faith alone uh, is the heart of the gospel. Abraham is the father of that. And the, the definition of justification is declared righteous. Uh, it's, a, it's a legal term. It's a courtroom term, a forensic term. Justification, to be declared righteous. We are all going to stand before the tribunal of God and we are hoping he will declare us righteous. On what basis will he do that? On the basis of Christ. If you are in Christ, he sees Christ's work, not yours, and he declares you righteous. If he sees your work, then he will declare you unrighteous and he will sentence you to condemnation. So, that's the heart and soul of justification by faith. You're declared righteous. Now, suppose we take that meaning of justification and we say every time the Bible uses the word justification, it means to be declared righteous and no longer guilty for your sin. Then you come to James chapter 2, where James uses the same word and says... You see that man is not justified by faith alone, but by works also. A direct contradiction to Paul's language, to Paul's use of the word. Man is justified not by works alone, but by, I mean, by faith alone, but by works also. And what is exhibit A as he demonstrates this? Abraham. He declares that Abraham was justified by his works. If the word justification means the same thing in both passages, we have a direct contradiction and the cynics have a point. How do we resolve that? Easy. Justification does not have a theological meaning that is consistent in every usage. James is using the word in a different way. Justification there means more along the lines of vindication. It is proven to be right. Jesus used it this way. Jesus said, wisdom is justified by her children. 
Same word as in Romans and in James. But the translators don't translate it justified. The translators render it, wisdom is vindicated by her children. Meaning, if you have genuine wisdom, it will be proven to be wisdom through your actions. That's how James is using it. If you have genuine faith, that faith will be proven by your works, as Abraham's was. Abraham is declared righteous for his faith, and then he proves he has genuine faith later on when he's willing to sacrifice his son, Isaac, on the mountain. That proved that he really did trust the Lord. So we cannot, we must not give a theological meaning to a term and then import that meaning everywhere when we're studying. Same thing would be true of sanctification. To sanctify is to set it apart, to set something apart. It does not mean inherently righteous, at least not in every occurrence. Sometimes when the Bible uses the word sanctification, it is virtually a synonym for justification, to be set apart in Christ and, and, uh, and righteous in Christ. Sometimes it means to be holy. So sometimes it's, it's declared holy, and sometimes it's to be made holy. Uh, when we talk about immutability, we, have, we create this doctrine of immutability, and we say God is immutable. Well, what does that mean? Uh, one guy I talked to years ago thought it meant we can't ever shut God up because he can't mute him. No, it's not what it means. It means he doesn't change. Uh, and the Bible does teach that he doesn't change. In his essence and who he is, he doesn't change. And yet... There is change in his activity, so we have to be careful and not impute this idea of immutability to God such that he can't act and make decisions. There was a time when God hadn't created the world, and there was a time when he had created the world. There's change. Now, nothing has changed about the inherent character of God, but things do change. It's not just a static uh, being. He's not just a static being. Uh, omniscience, omnipresence, all those things. Uh, God is everywhere, and yet God shows up. Well, how does that work? Well, again, when we see God appearing in in form of an angel, the the angel of the Lord, or a man, so to speak, uh, we have to realize we're not talking about uh, the inherent character of deity. We're telling the story of Jesus. When, When God shows up to Abraham, And he says, I've come down to see if the evil and wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah is really as bad as I've heard. That doesn't mean he didn't already know. This is, it's a story. It's a story being told of Jesus. And and we need to read it in that form because that's how it's given to us. Uh, And we we should not try to fit these different different narratives into our theological assumptions going in. The Bible will come alive to us if we don't read it through the systematic theology lens primarily, but through the biblical theology lens. So again, read your systematic theologies. There's a place for that. Do your word studies. There's a place for that. But more than those things, spend your time searching, um, pondering, analyzing, trying to find Jesus on every page of your Bible.
All right, folks, that's going to do it for episode 47 of the Cross to Cron podcast. Thanks for joining me. Uh, if this is beneficial to you, I would appreciate it if you would share it around, uh, do all the liking and rating that uh, you're supposed to do on these things, and, uh, and help other people uh, come so they can learn how to be better men, better shepherds, and uh, better students of the scripture. Until next week, I encourage you to be intentionally Christ-obsessed in all things. Amen.